0: Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea, or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Who do I have on today's show? Reinhard Reichenstein, the eminent allegorical minimalist, has inverted trees and immortalized moments in the history of the natural world in bronze since the mid-20th century. His permanent bronze works are situated in public and private gardens across North America and Europe. Although Reinhard's work is not political, every time Justin Trudeau enters Rideau Hall, he is first greeted by a Reichenstein waterfall feature which was commissioned as a permanent work by former Governor-General Adrian Clarkson. Since the turn of the 21st century, Reinhardt has served as the head of the sculpture program at SUNY in Buffalo, New York. In 2019, he inaugurated the Art Gallery of Hamilton's year-long Artist-in-Residence program, where he introduced the realm of questioning that has become allegorical minimalism. The same year, just outside of New York City, he and sound artist Gail Young, his longtime collaborator and life partner, orchestrated a sonic installation for the Arboradium at Caremore Estates. Reinhardt's work was featured in the inaugural exhibition at the Barbara Edwards Project Space, Ecologies of Landscape, curated by Mark Cheatham. It showcases artists featured in his 2018 publication, Landscape into Eco-Art, Articulations of Nature Since the 1960s, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, the cover of which is Reichenstein's Transformer. This iconic work is a 100-foot inverted tree suspended between two hydroelectric towers on a cliff above a hydroelectric dam in northern Quebec. At this time, please help me welcome Reinhard Reichenstein to the podcast. Hello. Reinhard. Hi. How are you today?
1: <laughs> Just fine. Yeah, actually looking forward to our conversation. It's been great. today. Yeah, I'm
0: really looking forward to this. You've been doing a project for the last little while for the COVID series.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Like I think today is day 292. In other words, I've done 292 straight days of um, posting a small intervention that I perform outdoors or that I chronicle it somewhere in my travels. Sometimes they're very complex. Sometimes they're super simple, and, and sometimes they are found. But I've wanted to chronicle the length of the pandemic by virtue of making a work every day to keep myself um, what I like to call focused, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and to not feel the kind of overwhelming depression that I think is so prevalent during this pandemic.
0: So did you start on day one? Did you know you were going to do this?
1: No, uh, I started actually last Halloween. So this Halloween will be a full year and that's when I'll probably stop the project. I will give it a one full year and then begin the process of hopefully publishing one, possibly two books based on these projects.
0: When you started, did you have a vision for the pieces or was it just, I'm going to dive into this and then let's see where the journey takes me?
1: Yeah, every day is an improvisation, because I've done so many interventions outdoors for many, many years. There's something I've been doing for close to 40 years where I make a small circle with an X form in the center, sort of four directions, and I make hundreds and hundreds of those wherever I travel, whenever I meet water anywhere I'm traveling, and Mm -hmm. I make this very small intervention as a kind of an offering, to my mind, a sort of a simple gift to focus on the water wherever I am. Mm -hmm. So I've done these kinds of things for many, many years and will continue in one way or another.
0: What's the significance of the circle or how did you decide that that form was important when you first started your work?
1: Well, it, it has a long history that the idea of that it's a symbolic, iconic kind of image that is pretty much universal, it's, It that appears in, in a number of cultures around the world, in many cultures around the world, in fact, from indigenous cultures on, on North America to Nordic and Druidic and, and so on, uh, right over to Asia, Japan, and so on. I've seen examples from many, many different cultures that echo a similar kind of form. So I feel it, it's something that has an international kind of presence. But I do it as a very private act. I generally don't exhibit those things, and I've never published them. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in book form or not, although my brother's been trying to get me to do that. <laughs> so who knows?
0: So this will be the first time that you're taking that to that next level where you're actually publishing.
1: Yeah, which was the intention from the get-go. Yeah.
0: And, and will you be doing the writing to go along with that, or do you have somebody that will assist with that part?
1: Yeah, a couple of people have just come forward and volunteered editing and writing. So I imagine I'll be collaborating with a couple of people, depending on how many let's say, how many, how much writing I want, which I don't want a lot of, and whether it's two publications and there are going to be particular kinds of focus, so I'd have to select someone who has the appropriate kind of point of view or, let's say, the perspective to be able to contribute on that level.
0: That's great, actually. That's really fantastic. You also are doing an NFT project. Is that connected in any way to this?
1: Um, no. NFTs are something that have uh, arisen, I mean, I've been aware of them for some time. Through some of my grad students at UB in in Buffalo, out of New York, they've been sort of on top of uh, this crypto world and the blockchain ideas and so on. So they've been talking to me about NFTs for a few years, but it wasn't until this past year that a team of a couple of people approached me to wonder whether I would be interested in engaging in that format. So there was such a hubbub about it all, of course, there was such a, you know, so, 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 so much information, as you well know. So ultimately, I thought, well, you know, my credibility is always at stake as one works as an artist over almost a half a century now. Mm -hmm. And updating myself was really critical. So I thought, wow, this would be great. And and in fact, it allows me to operate outside of the existing markets, gallery system, collectors, and uh, not so much collectors, but dealers and so on. So it's an alternative parallel path that I wanted to engage with. Mm -hmm. So I have published one series of NFTs. We're currently I just finished a new drawing that I'm going to have digitally processed. That'll be coming up, and I'm starting a third one very, very soon. And with that in mind, I've also now purchased the means to draw directly digitally. So I'll be transferring my analog skills to the digital medium, but using a a Wacom tablet, which is a direct draw medium, which is very much like drawing an analog, but it'll be a digital record. So I'm working in that world.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of information this year. I think Mm -hmm. with COVID, more people are looking at NFTs, Yeah, I know even just myself, I've heard a couple of podcasts that have talked about the rise of them for artists and how they can be valuable way to get your work out there.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty amazing format. For one thing, the blockchain, it's vulnerable to some degree, but they're getting tighter and tighter with securities and validation and encrypting and so on. So we're hoping that, of course, (laughs) the more I say that, the more there are people trying to hack systems. So who knows, there's a lot of activity in that world and it's an ongoing activity because there could be quite a bit of money involved so people get in there in in whatever way they can. But I'm much more optimistic that it'll become a form that will be pretty much ubiquitous as we go Mm -hmm. forward as the crypto technology and the crypto economy moves forward, which it seems to be doing in leaps and bounds.
0: Yeah, I have to say when I hear some of these terminologies, I get a little bit anxious about them because it's outside of my <laughs> knowledge base, but I'm trying to learn what I can about them as I go.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where I'm at too. Uh, it's a new world, but it's a world that I find really compelling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The fact that, that you can distribute at such, a, at such a scale for me and such a breadth is what I find really quite interesting, which kind of uh, overrides what, what's available in the kind of more exclusionary gallery museum world, although museums are, are getting on board as well. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot of digital action. I mean, there's a huge exhibition of Monet things now, happening a fully immersive environment at the Toronto Convention Center. That's uh, something I'm going to want to go and visit as well to see what what a museum hasn't been doing and what they could do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about that immersive world. It's suddenly appeared, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. Just because, you know, traditionally, like most people, I'm used to going to a gallery and standing in front of yeah. artwork, and now. Yeah, stand
1: it's, in the artwork yeah exactly and also i mean traveling artworks now i mean there's so many formats that one can experience artwork through i think uh, the breadth of those experiences i think is really uh, i look at that as any any other kind of ecology the the more diversity there is in any eco- ecosystem the healthier the system so my sense is that you know one of these things diversify i think it's just generally more uh, more beneficial for everyone especially mm-hmm. artists moving in, young, young artists and so on. Since I'm also involved in education and training young artists, I mean, they, there are so many people graduating into the art world. I mean, where are they going to go? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and these are some formats that are available to them.
0: Mm-hmm. You work at a lot of different mediums. How does your ideas translate between the different forms?
1: Well, I define myself as a curiosity. It's curiosity that drives pretty much everything I do. If there is an idea welling up and the the medium makes sense to be a drawing or it makes sense to be a photograph or it makes sense to be an an installation or an object or even a a sound file or even a video file or whatever, and in this case now also NFT files, I just follow my uh, impetus to uh, satisfy the curiosity that arises in me whenever I... I'm moving through ideas and and reinventing myself pretty regularly. I mean, when you've been making work as long as I have, it's really significant and important to reinvent yourself and rejuvenate and and refresh your language, you know, on a regular basis. And I've I've done that, which has been frustrating for people writing about my work, which hasn't been done at any great length at this point in my life. And I I do long for that. I'm hoping those art historians out there would like to take that on, of course. But ultimately, I find that... uh, the the more one works, the more complex and more layered one becomes and consequently much more difficult to track and talk about.
0: You've mentioned you evolve. Has it presented any challenges in terms of the traditional gallery and museums when they see your work? Are are they as pleased to see the transformations or do they find it a little more challenging when you're working so diversely?
1: Well, I, I know that some of the curators that I've dealt with over the years, predominantly from Europe, that's been sort of a much more European phenomenon in my experience, at least, although some of it happens here certainly as well. Diversity is not always welcomed by those who like to be able to predict what you're going to do next. And, and I think if you keep things open and moving in directions that are you know really about your own interests, then you sometimes leave a lot of uh, people in your wake. Mm-hmm. And and I have done that over the years. So people have spent a lot of effort and time writing about my work in various contexts. But it's hard to be comprehensive when it comes to someone like myself with, with mm-hmm. the diversity of my practice. Yeah,
0: I think that's what I find interesting about your work, Reinhardt, is there is this diversity. I've seen your work several times and I've gone to several exhibitions with it. And I'm always surprised by what I've seen, but pleasantly surprised. Because one time I can walk in and it's all sculptural and the next time it could be all drawings.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's good that you have that diversity and that, you know, you can still engage with the work and you can still see the connections between the different mediums that you're using.
1: Yeah, and I think most importantly, if you have a bit of experience with my work over the years, the overview, usually you can see the tie-ins pretty clearly. I mean, Mark Cheatham really noticed that one of the reasons he became interested in my work is because of the way I, I engaged with the natural world, which was different than many of the other folks he was speaking about, um, probably why he wanted that one particular image on the cover, because there was a critique in that, but at the same time, it, it was also a, a kind of a bizarre celebration, and he saw that way of working intriguing, and and was interested in the, the other ways I express uh, some of the same ideas and consequently he seems more comfortable he's one of the folks who seems comfortable with it within that diverse uh, world that I have created or co-created really <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's good um, can you give us a little bit of background on how you started your journey where did this all start how did you get interested in the natural world and how has it evolved over time
1: Well, that's a really good question. And that's a tough one to answer simply. I mean, I'm, as you might be aware, I'm an immigrant. I'm not born in North America. So, you know, in terms of the current parlance, I'm not an ally. I'm not a, I'm not a settler. I'm an immigrant. And I came here without my own personal choice. It was my parents who brought us here from Germany to escape conscription for my brother and myself. So they wanted to come to Canada or Switzerland and chose Canada. And consequently, I arrived in Canada in the early 50s into an environment of, of a lot of animosity toward Germans after the war, of course. And so we were, my brother and I were treated really poorly and uh, created you know, a tremendous amount of uh, stress in these young folks coming over without a choice of their own. And consequently, I ended up in Toronto. And I, um, for instance, a couple of experiences that would kind of showcase the kind of treatment I got when I remember I was in grade two. Mm -hmm. It was ironic, because I had already learned how to write in cursive and use ink and so much and so else. So all all of these other things that kids in grade two were not even doing it, they gave us all these clunky pencils and, you know, uh, ridiculous paper with large lines where we have to print within so i was pretty frustrated and they were going around the room one day pointing at people saying the alphabet which i thought okay well this is kind of ridiculous <laughs> mm-hmm. they pointed to me for at the letter h and in german the letter h is said you, you pronounce it ha teacher thought i was laughing well, he, he, so they told me you know to repeat it so i said it again at which point they sent me down to the office i was strapped with one of those great big leather straps and uh, great to the shock and dismay of my parents uh, who came in to try and figure out what's happening here so those kinds of incidences are they they really do uh, you know do very deep indelible marks in terms of one's own self-respect uh, especially coming into a new part of the world and new set of experiences so that was a that hovers in the background and I, I was raised in a, in an area that I didn't realize was a tough part of town but it was uh, the east end of Toronto and, and I went to Danforth Tech which also was a crazy rough school with murders and, you know, strange rituals and all kinds of mad things were motor- motorcycles riding up and down the hallways and so on. So, uh, <laughs> I got. I was. I was introduced to a pretty brutal kind of environment. Uh, for I my can't
0: age. even imagine that, to tell you the truth.
1: <laughs> yeah, these days, of course, that's not something you'll see happen. But it's in that era, it was quite prevalent. And so, I found myself trying to find a way to navigate this world. And I finally sort of stumbled into uh, playing in rock bands. So all through high school, I was a rock and roller, rock and roll. Basically dominated my life, and, and as a result, it also gave me a pretty a major setback. I, I lost out in grade twelve because I was spending my time playing rather than going to school, and ended up moving into the burbs with our family. At which point, I had another crack at grade twelve and found an incredible crowd of people. There were poets, musicians, writers, photographers—just a, a crowd of young folks that I fell into that really, really opened me up. And it was kind of almost like we were an early artist collective and we're talking about 1967, 68, 69, Mm -hmm. that year. And that was the introduction I, I needed to find, a, I guess, essentially to find a voice, and to find a, a place. And so art became just an extension of this experience with folks. I even I remember one of the, a couple of the guys were in a band and I took my first student loan when I got to art college and, and produced their album instead of spending it on my work. So, you know, it was that kind of an environment.
0: I'm a bit surprised by this because you didn't go into music, you went into art. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, no, and I I still play saxophone and guitar and and so on. So I used to be lead singer, guitar player, and and then I also played saxophones in orchestras. But yeah, that wasn't the career that pushed me. In fact, it was with this group of people I hung out with. One of them was uh, Norm Foster, the playwright, who was still a longtime friend. And uh, I found myself at OCA. All of a sudden, this guy came to the high school and talked about art school. And there I was. Suddenly I, I applied, I got in and, you know, things like going to New York City blew my mind. And uh, so, you know, it opened me up to worlds I didn't even know were there because as an immigrant, that was not something that was kind of uh, part of the daily parlance, even though my mom was an amateur painter and I did have some experience with, with art in the house. And my father was also very musical. He was a really good tenor singer, but they were victims of the wars and they just did, had to try and survive and, and not were able were not able to pursue their artistic career so i got some resistance but i did get support from them and so here i was at art, art school i went to new york I, my mind was blown i came back and i thought well, is my work any good so i went into the Carmen gallery at the time in toronto and i just wanted an opinion outside of school outside of the monastery right
0: mm-hmm. and
1: he kept kept interested in my work and by the time that was when i was 21 he started showing me and when i was 21 in toronto mm-hmm. and that kind of completely um blew my mind and at which point i also wanted to go a little deeper i traveled back to germany to look at origins and culture and roots and all that good stuff came back to oca didn't like it quit in my third year i left oca and i wanted to develop my language further so i ended up moving to thunder bay i didn't go to new york city i didn't go to chicago or berlin I went to Thunder Bay.
0: Why did you choose Thunder Bay?
1: (laughs) You asked the question about nature, you see. So the crazy thing was that some of my friends ended up going to college up there. So I thought, well, I'll go visit and see what that's like. And of course, Thunder Bay to me was everything a European kid would have thought of as iconic and wild and and so on, so I suddenly found myself uh, in these incredibly and unfamiliar environments in the wilderness, the wildness in fact of that wilderness, and then indigenous cultures and all of the the kinds of things that were happening to indigenous people then, but you know some of the brutal things and some of the wonderful things and I managed to get onto trap lines with some of the guys and you know had some wonderful adventures and in the woods and that's where my first iterations of working in nature happened mm-hmm. there, outside of Thunder Bay but the winters became too much after a couple of years and I just I went back to Toronto so in Toronto I just wanted to stay more connected to the art scene and in an urban environment and so um, I was there for about a year and National Gallery at that point bought one of my works I was showing at the Carmen Lamont Gallery And I wanted more, and I thought, well, I'm going to go elsewhere. So I moved to London, Ontario, where there were a lot of really good artists. So I got to be buddies with everyone from Patterson Ewan, Murray Favreau, Ron Martin, Greg Kernel, Jack Chambers, Jamelia Hassan, Ron Benner, and that whole crowd, many of whom are still friends. And that was a really great experience. And I I stayed on in that and ended up running a business with friends. But somehow the nature works wouldn't stop. So even along the Thames River and so on, I kept coming up with crazy little pieces. And most of the work became purely photographic, chronicling experiences and interventions or just documenting phenomena outdoors. So I thought, okay, I got to get out of the city again. So off I went to McDonald's Corners near Ottawa in, in Lanark County, where I spent a couple of years really digging in and, and developing my practice on a really on a much higher level. And I had my first solo show. Uh, most of the shows up until then had been group shows or two-person shows. And then finally, Carmen wanted me to do a, a solo show, all of which was photographic, uh, all of which had to do with chronicling subtle phenomena in my observations of the natural world around me out that way. So that that's, you know, that's kind of how things uh, evolved. And then uh, I started evolving the nature works and pushing them into installation environments, combining objects and, and other kinds of elements, including at that point, I met my partner, Gail Young, who then helped me develop sound uh, works, sound extensions of the installations. And we even published a uh, record album of mm-hmm. three of the projects that we'd done together. So the, they became rather large, elaborate works with sound development. We, so we were kind of early practitioners of sound in art, influenced by Gail and her studies with soundscape and, and people like Murray Schaefer, who unfortunately recently died, who was a long, long-time friend, you know, who in, basically popularized the word soundscape. So, I mean, that, that's a roundabout explanation to how I got started in nature.
0: That's uh, perfect. Yeah, I didn't know some of that. So i I'm have been impressed to hear the story and how you got to where you are. Maybe you could talk a little bit about working with your partner, Gail, and what that's Mm -hmm. like. I've come across several artists in this process of starting the podcast who work with partners. I always find that's interesting. Mm -hmm. What's that like and how do you collaborate together?
1: Well, we met by virtue of a couple of friends who strangely put us together. And I, I was looking at the time for this would have been like we're we're talking 1977 now. Okay, so take, go back there with me. I, I was looking for someone to write sound, to write some kind of a piece for my, one of these installations I was developing. At the time, and I inadvertently had to go to my friend's house, who was practicing with a new band and a new singer. It was Mary Margaret O'Hara that was they were practicing with, and I, I had a sort of a crush on her in art school. But anyway, I thought oh, maybe I could ask her out, but no. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I walk into the house, and uh, wouldn't you know it? I heard this really interesting music, and I and I, at that point I had been talking to Catherine Moses, a, a flautist, and who had written some really beautiful works for flute and and cello and our scheduling couldn't work. And so here I was walking into my friend's house. I hear this music and I'm going, what's that? Who's that? They said, oh, that's this unusual, interesting girl living in, in, like we're, you know, they're sharing a house, like four or five people. And I said, I want to meet her. And they said, okay, well, come to the rehearsal and then we see what we can set up. So I met Gail briefly we talked very, you know, very super, you know, very simple conversations. I was just really admiring her work because I'd never heard anything quite like it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so that was the end of that. And then it wasn't, wasn't it like a year later that all of a sudden I thought, geez, I got to find who is that girl. I got to get her to write something. Mm -hmm. So then I I look her up again through a friend and we ended up at a party and started talking and the two of us talked really fast. So I thought, okay, first of all, this person can keep up with me and I can keep up with them. We started talking about, objects and sound being, you know, complements of each other, both physical, extending each other's spaces, one being static, one being time-based, and how these worlds merge and how can we make these worlds merge. Those conversations is what started our, our thinking about, we well, let's do some work together, and that's where it began and uh, and where it still is in many ways. So we met through each other's work, not through some bar, <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's okay. And, though.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't mind, of course. Yeah, and I find that you know that's probably why you know we're we're still working together, living together. You know, forty three years later, we're still working together. So something something took and something complemented one another's practices
0: and still does. Well, and that support's really important too. You need somebody yeah. who can yeah. support you and understand what you're doing. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the collaboration became a deep partnership, and uh, consequently, we've evolved some pretty interesting things, sound installations and all kinds of stuff all over the place.
0: So when you guys decide to work together, do you work on timelines, or is it just like you have an inspiration, and you're like, hey, let's try this project, or...?
1: It, it varies. I, I think some of it was to do with uh, creating architectural interventions, where using the acoustics of a space with strings and other kinds of uh, elements to uh, create resonances within spaces so the spaces themselves would talk about what we could do but also then something as simple as someone saying well look you know we're doing we're doing such and such at a festival is there anything that you could imagine doing for that festival, and then we began by looking at options, and we started a whole series of works called uh, Tuyo Sonar, or uh, Sonic Tubes, which are long uh, tubular resonators that we... Gail knows acoustics really, really well. She's designed and built her own instruments, she studies acoustics, and she has a pretty good savvy on on all of that, and so consequently she's able to determine the length of tubes to have particular resonances, and that we would place those resonant uh, chambers into different outdoor settings, white noise spectra of like waterfalls or traffic or river systems and so on. And they basically, what those tubes do, they have fundamental pitches that complement or that are pulled out of a white noise spectrum. And that also at the same time are almost telescopic in that they bring tiny sounds to your ears when you put your ear up to one of those tubes in any of those environments. So you like an organ uh, tube sound, you get this kind of resonant frequency, you know, a nice low note. And then at the same time you're hearing the trickling stream 20 feet below you kind of thing. So those, those kinds of works we've done in, in a variety of settings and we'll probably continue to do so. And Gail does a lot of recording through those tubes and integrates that with her instrumental works and her compositions as well. Mm -hmm.
0: That's great. What about your own process as an artist? Do you have a set of rituals or things that you do when you're coming up with ideas or developing ideas? Is it through photographs, sketchbooks? notebooks?
1: Well, that's a question I get asked a lot. I mean, you know, I've taught at a lot of different universities over the years, and I've been at UB for 20 years, and it's a question that comes up pretty regularly, particularly from grad students who would like to pick your brain about process, right, and and, Mm -hmm. and how you engage. I mean, I keep telling people that um, drawing becomes really fundamental to processing ideas for me most of the time. Mm-hmm. But I also, that said, sketching and drawing, I mean, I can do the same thing with a video camera and I can do the same thing with a camera. I mean, the idea of chronicling a selection of things in sketch form that would then later on feed a, a larger exercise is pretty typical. There's no kind of, I don't think I have a particular ritual other than when I'm in my studio, I procrastinate <laughs> I, just <linked> that. <laughs> oh, I would rather, uh, yeah, I would rather water plants, look at <laughs> the window, you know, read a book, listen to some music, or sometimes I just sit and write in my journal. And sometimes just sitting and writing helps open up things. But there's no, there's no direct. Uh, ritualized action. I'm not one of those artists that goes in at nine in the morning and leaves at five in the afternoon. I admire that when friends of mine do that kind of work and that are able to do that. And like some writers, they will set aside three hours and that's it. I go in whenever it makes sense. And whenever curiosity uh, reaches a high enough uh, amplitude that I, I have to do something about it. And it's really, again, going, I mean, I, I called myself a curiosity at the outside of our chat And uh, curiosity is the driver. It's the primary driver. I I don't want to have solutions or or, or any ideological, political comment or academic, philosophical comment. I simply engage in instigating curiosity in the viewer and others as well as my own. So consequently, you've said the word allegorical minimalism. It's, It's a movement that I've started because it's a movement that I felt I couldn't be classified. I don't really consider myself an eco artist i don't consider myself a land artist i don't consider myself an earth artist i can consider myself all of that plus more mm-hmm. because i'm working in nfts and photography and, and what have you all the things you mentioned public art i've done a number of public artworks over the years so essentially what i do is just follow my, my follow my curiosity and, and allegorical minimalism was a philosophical curiosity that I wanted to produce for and place into the world because it, it is about the, the impossibility of interpretation, the impossibility of mean, of creating meaning. In other words, any closed system that academia and so much, I'm very tired of, by the way, after all these years in, in the academic realms. I just wanted to do something that would subvert that or under not so much undermine that because I don't, I don't care what people do, it's up to them, but in my own case, I wanted to free myself from having to feel as though I, I have to be politically rhetorical or I have to be academically responsible or all of the other kind of rhetoric that's been thrown around by critics and art historians know for, you know, ad nauseum for far too long. So allegorical minimalism simply opens up the direct, opens you up to direct experience and personal perception and the hell with it all, or <laughs> anything else that it might be. So, and I really, you know, I don't care. I really don't care about significance anymore. I don't care about ambition. I, I care about curiosity and asking questions. I just want to ask more importantly engaging questions or more interestingly engaging questions.
0: I think that's wonderful because so many artists I talk to, they, they worry about what others will perceive. And I love mm-hmm. that idea of just like being curious and going for it.
1: I'm actually handing out stickers now for the last couple of years since allegorical minimalism was born. Uh, it says the artist statement is obsolete. There you go.
0: <laughs> can, I, can I put that forward the next time I have to write one? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, you, take, you have to take the heat if you do, because it, yeah I, so know. Many, uh, I mean, curators ha- can't handle that and don't like that. But I always tell them, I said, look, you know, it's your show. You're curating. You do the writing. Don't ask me. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not going to gonna- tell you what to think.
0: That's funny, Aaron, because when I met you, you were teaching us how to do (laughs) artist statements.
1: I was foolish and young. (laughs) There you
0: go. I'm thinking about some of your installation pieces are quite complex. And Mm -hmm. they look like they involve a lot of planning, coordination, teamwork. What are some of the challenges you've come up against in getting them to be installed in the places that they're to be, but also just for the vision, I guess, to come through as once you have it all in place.
1: Well, the key there is the willingness for people to follow me after they make an invitation, you know, in other words, do they have the courage to uh, let me go where I want to go? And I've always surrounded myself with an incredible team. I've got some really superb people that I work with regularly and have for many years. And I just bring my team for the most part whenever I do anything so that unless I have a really welcoming environment of very well-engaged installers like the recent experience of uh, my year-long residency, the R-Carry Hamilton, I mean, mm-hmm. there, the folks were so incredibly accommodating. And, uh, and Greg, who's, who's an amazing installer, one of the best I've met, he was astonishingly resourceful in how we engineered the suspension of that 25-foot-long tree and, and disks and the kind of elaborate suspension system that had to be engineered and uh, produced. I mean, there it's it's really about the willingness of an institution to make it work for you. And that's really their job. If they want you there, then they hopefully will will accommodate that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Ever been a piece where you're like, what was I thinking when I started this?
1: Yeah, I sometimes destroy those pieces. I've destroyed a number of those, in fact, in recent years, uh, pieces that I thought were interesting at the time. But, you know, uh, so I just have a lot more extra bronze and stuff hanging around because I destroyed the pieces. I just didn't, nobody bought them and they didn't go anywhere. And I don't really think that they were good enough to remain part of my portfolio. So I took them out of out of the running and have kept them you know under wraps (laughs) but yeah I mean there there was well I'll give you one example Uh, some years ago I was doing a piece for uh, a small art gallery and I had an idea in mind and it was to split a cedar tree into four and then pull it back to the earth and because cedar will replant itself and then continue growing so Mm -hmm. well that didn't work so the curator freaked out because that was you know the, the opening was in two days and And I said, no, don't worry, I've got uh, Plan B. So, you know, I go to Plan B and that didn't work. And -hmm. the curator got a little more nervous and I said, no, 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 it's okay. Don't worry, I'll stay here until I get Plan C going. (laughs) And uh, Plan C didn't work. Uh, (laughs) At that point, I I had a day left and, you know, a few hours left. And I said, but I do have a Plan D. And uh, Plan D was actually a beautiful amalgamation of everything I was trying to do and worked out so beautifully that Plan D was actually a much better piece in the end and the curator relaxed and, you know, but it was fun to watch the curator squirm. I like that. that was yeah, it.
0: they need to trust in the process of the artist. Everything's right to the minute.
1: Yeah, and some, some curators get it, and they're really supportive of that. Other curators get nervous, and it depends on their experience level and on who it, who it is that they have confidence in working. You know, uh, In my case, I guess people who had – there was enough confidence. That, um, but I always tell everyone, you know, there's no such thing as a, a never. You, you'll always find the, the next iteration okay. – if you're thinking
0: clearly. I find it interesting you said that you destroy work because during COVID I had this idea of destroying several of my pieces and mm-hmm. I got a lot of pushback from people about you should never destroy work. Bullshit. So, <laughs> there you go. You answered my question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, look, it's your work. My goodness. If people say think that they should keep the work, tell them to freaking buy it. Uh, or, or if that's not comfortable for you, then my goodness, you, should, you have the right to destroy the work if you know it's not up to your standards. And why keep that in the world? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just misrepresenting you. And I felt the same about my work. It was misrepresenting me. So I wanted it out of the mix and I couldn't care less what my dealers were saying or anything else. It's not their problem.
0: It was such a contentious issue, and I didn't realize how people would get so worked up about it.
1: If they're all that worked up, they should make you an offer.
0: You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. (laughs) I'll let them know. I'll send out the emails tonight. (laughs) Available.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I've walked right into one of my exhibitions and pulled work out and broke it up in pieces and walked away.
0: That's a so, performance aspect, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, much to the chagrin of that point, it was Carmen Romana back in the day who was my my dealer for 20 years and pretty much a mentor because I was so young. But for the last 25 or so years, I've been with Olga Korper and, and also working with a gallery in Buffalo. So, you know, and most most folks there, I mean, Olga's real hardcore. She's she's uh, crisp, we'll call it. She's a lovely, lovely uh, person in many, many ways, but super crisp and never fails in telling you exactly what she thinks so if she doesn't like what you do. And uh, there's been a few times when I just walked out in, in outrage and just said, you know, forget this. I don't want to have that conversation. I'm out of here. So you have to hold up your own standards. I mean, there, there, nobody else can do that for you,
0: right? Right. It's your work. Yeah. And collaboration
1: I'm- is collaboration's a key part of all of that, too, because I've done mm-hmm. a lot of collaborative work, not only with Gail, but with other. Other people, you know, I, I was, a, after Carmen Lomana died in 1991, I also became a member of Nethermind Collective, which was one of the first early collectives in Toronto, artist collectives in Toronto, all made of sculptors. And it was great to see how we curated and envisioned exhibitions together. And that, that's a, another way by which you keep checks and, and on yourself in terms of what you're capable of producing. Mm-hmm. And those experiences are really healthy
0: can you talk about that idea of collaboration and why artists crave or need that
1: in the in light of the re-examination of the Darwinian worldview that we're, we seem to be doing science of course is pretty vulnerable and usually you get one theory that's soon replaced by another but in any case the the re-examination of darwin and the survival of the fittest idea w- actually what we're finding is that it was through collaboration that we have survived as a species and other species have as well and so collaboration is a methodology by which artists have survived in, in on a scene for instance young artists coming out of graduation which is the case of the Nethermind folks in the early 90s they didn't have a place to go they didn't you know they weren't in the gallery there were not enough dealers to absorb them and then there's Never enough dealers to absorb the vast number of artists that are out there now. And galleries come and go and so on. So collaboration becomes a really great survival strategy. And the Artist Run Centers was the response to that in the the 60s that I was kind of part of when A-Space started in Toronto. But, you know, later on, it was was collectives that became uh, methodology and funding became available for collectives to thrive and so on. And of course, with digital technologies, NFTs and all the rest of it, that's another collaborative space that people are, are, are working within. Dealers and public galleries and museums are never enough. And so artists are always really great at recreating contexts for themselves. And that's certainly the collaborative uh, aspect of what we did as a collective and still do. In fact, we still do The Odd Show. It's a great survival strategy. It's supportive, especially in tough times like now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we rely on each other's expertise, each other's you know, sense of support, and also create an event or a context for others, right? So it's, nice. it's really su- super cool.
0: How do you think COVID is affecting artists or changing the way artists engage?
1: I, I think collaboration is really on the rise because of it. I'm noticing more and more of that kind of thing happening around me and uh, around, around the country and around the world. So collaboration seems to be uh, ever more engaged with, but also people are looking ever more into the digital realms as well because those things are immune from having to be physically somewhere. You can, you can go online and produce at a pretty high level constantly without having any fear of contact, as it were, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So yeah, those methodologies are shifting and changing and distribution as a result is changing. And the digital world has allowed ideas and works to be distributed much more freely and openly and quickly, right?
0: Do you think we'll see a return to some of the models that were pre-COVID, like the museum or gallery show? Or do you think we'll have a hybrid of that?
1: I think hybridity is a good idea, a good option mm-hmm. in this case. And I think we're going to see much of the same things returning. But I think with an ever-increasing digital component, we, we know that, you know, everyone's digitizing their collections. People are, you know, putting them online. VR experiences, VA experiences, all of these things are opening up other options and variables for experiencing work. And uh, the digital realm is really our, our era, right? It's mm-hmm. what we're, we're learning to navigate that world, which is vast.
0: And yeah, deep. we're learning fast, too.
1: Yeah. Unpredictable.
0: So, who are some artists that you find inspiring that would either be influential to your work or your ideas, thought process? Oh, just me. Just you. I like that. <laughs> Simple. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know that. That said, as I, I look at so, it's like my my practice is super diverse, and I look at so much. I, I really couldn't uh, zero in on any. I mean, there was a time when Joseph voice was a key figure in everything I was thinking about and doing, and Patterson Ewan was a key figure, and mm-hmm. and Giorgio O'Keefe was really important to me. Louise Bourgeois was really important to me at different intervals. Marcel Duchamp, of course, for all of his irony and, and mm-hmm. wonderful playfulness, and and that included the whole Pop Gang. But also, I got to be friendly with people like Giuseppe Pannoni and and some of the some of the guys in Italy from the Arte Povera movement, and those things were all very inspiring to me as a young artist. And so those things I engaged with and got to hang out with some of those folks in different settings. And so those things were quite pivotal. But currently, it's such a broad spectrum now that I'm looking at, going, you know, I, I try to go to Documenta and Venice and, and all of these things to see what's coming what's out there and as the diaspora of Africa and other places opened up you see practices that are just mind-blowingly beautiful and, and powerful coming out and I don't even remember the names of so many of these folks some of which I can't pronounce and some of which I can't remember because our language gap is so huge mm-hmm. but but I am you know totally inspired by ways people like um El, El, uh, the uh, I think he's uh, the guy who does these huge tapestries using junk and stuff found
0: mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, with, yeah. with his yeah. village
1: and he's from Ghana and uh, one of my colleagues at school, uh, George Hughes, also from a Ghanaian artist who does really politically charged and post-colonial uh, works I find really inspiring as well. So, I mean, I'm seeing cultural uh, experiences coming from so many contexts that it, right now it's the richest, the most broadly based inspiring environment that I can remember in all the years of working, coming at me from every direction. So to try and pinpoint any of them, is really, uh, really difficult. What I am enjoying a great deal, though, are all the community based projects that are happening where artists mm-hmm. are, are working with children, with communities and and so on to create um, cultural product and experiences and so on. And that's kind of where I'm going with my work now. I'm planning large-scale uh, inverted tree circles where I can create events out of and have DJs performing in the mm-hmm. midst of them and so on. And that's kind of what I'm, those are the things I'm developing currently along with my NFTs. So some of which will turn into NFTs. So I've got to and these are some of which will also be community-based and, and going down to Texas in a couple of weeks to, to play a bit to see what I can come up with in a couple of places there. I'm also planning something in Venice next year and, and whether that's going to come off, we'll see, but I'm excited about the, the possibilities and we'll be speaking to some people next week about that.
0: Mm-hmm. You've done so, work in a yeah. number of different places. How do you find that when you're not at your own home studio, but you're traveling to create What's that
1: experience like? I actually love it because it means I have to be, and I, because of my music background too, the the idea of uh, improvisation is really key in my in my practice and the way that I work in the world. I tend to not be an over planner kind of person. Mm-hmm. I plan carefully when when as needed, but at the same time, I leave a lot of room for direct experience improvisation in situ, which allows me to open up to possibilities that I would not ordinarily uh, have if I bring something with me, or if I parachute something in, which I, I never like to do, if I can avoid it, I prefer to see the limits of where I am and, and find the, the possibilities of where I am to to create an informed project. So yeah, I welcome the, the derailment of the familiar.
0: So you go there with the intention of, I will figure out whatever it is I need and find what I need when I get there?
1: Pretty much. and I, I mean, I I will be usually invited to do something that People will understand I would want to work with, with trees for the most part,
0: right, mm-hmm. or some,
1: some natural system. And so they'll expect, you know, and first of all, I mean, then, of course, I'd want to ask them to take me to sites, to take me to situations where I could have a look and, and contemplate and walk and, and think about things for a few days. Um, sometimes they come really quickly. Sometimes the ideas take time. Mm-hmm. And, and it really depends on so many factors that are not something you can predict at all. For instance, the uh, the Transformer piece that's on the cover of Mark Cheatham's book, that piece happened uh, in Quebec. And there are artists from three different, four different countries that came together to site visit. We were all flown in to site visit. And we and the curator were walking out into this La Gabel Park. And I saw these two decommissioned towers and I turned to the curator. And it wasn't even five minutes. I turned to the curator and the other artist. OK, I know what I want to do everybody looked at me like what the? you know wtf are you kidding me i and, got it uh, i and i said no no this is just like here you know i'm not going to tell you right away i have to see if it's possible but this is what i want to do and i told the curator in private and he just it blew his mind and he said we'll make it work so yeah so sometimes they're like that so and that has become a really iconic work for me and also and a good example of just being in the moment fully aware fully engaged fully there. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love the challenge of that. And that's something I welcome wherever I am.
0: Yeah, that's important. I think that engagement and being
1: mm-hmm.
0: aware of what's around you and sort of going with that.
1: Yeah, another example sure. would be I, I did a project in, in Santiago, Chile some years ago. And there I want I knew I was going to do something with a tree. And I wanted a colonial tree. I wanted a eucalyptus tree, which is a colonial thing that, you know, part of the one of the histories that's not examined as much as I'd like to see is the kind of agricultural colonialism that happens post-colonization and uh uh, because that tree is taking over the landscape and it comes from another part of the world blah 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 i wanted to use it so i brought i met the poet laureate of chile who invited me to his land because he was removing the eucalyptus and he said take whichever one you want and so i got this 80 foot eucalyptus tree and I had to get it into the city so, and nobody would help me. And so I, I said, well, how the hell am I going to get this tree into town? So I went, I, I just phoned everybody I could find in the phone book at the time and found a, a guy in a truck and two guys in a truck on a Saturday that would do it all in cash. So I went and got some American cash and I showed up and these two guys came and we put the team together, took it apart put it on a truck, brought it into the city. Nobody wanted to move it into the museum. The readers didn't want it in the museum. I ran out to the streets and I yelled out in my worst Spanish, and my best Spanish, uh, for $5 American, I, I need people to help me carry this tree. And in five minutes, I had 20 people. We picked up the tree and we moved it into the museum.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> And, and those are the things that make the greatest memories too, right?
1: Absolutely. And what it, and politically, it was charged. That was a really crazy moment because uh, I was trying to bring the postcolonial kind of discourse into that uh, arboreal practice, right? So that was a pretty politicized piece. In fact, I, I used beeswax from Canadian bees and beeswax from uh, Chilean bees and made patched up the tree and made bowls in the tree and I poured blood and milk and blood and milk and blood and milk all along the trunk of the tree, which to me, you know, commemorates the amount of bloodshed and, and everything under the Pinochet regime and so on. So it was a pretty charged piece. But mm-hmm. again, it was the context that allowed me to think about that piece once I got there.
0: Do you think you would create pieces like that if you were in those spaces and places? Or do you think they would have the same charge if you tried to do it from here?
1: Wouldn't work here because the context is not the same. The fact is the context tells you what, what the content will be. and And in the case of Chile, the, the Pinochet years were very painful. Chile was one of the most literate countries in the world and over ninety percent literacy rate. And after Pinochet and the American, you know, CIA, it dropped into the seventies and it's sad when, when that kind of politics is played out in a in a country. And, you know, there I met also indigenous people who are trying to fight for the forests and the watersheds and so on. And so there the context drove the work and, and, and when I move into a situation like that, that's certainly what I would pay attention to. Mm -hmm. The the Circle of Upside-Down Trees I did in 1987 when all this started with my arboreal practices, that was done in in collaboration with an 88-year-old chief of the local reserve around Sault Ste. Marie, where we were laying claim to land that uh, he's trying to get back from the federal government at the time so that project played into that discussion into that discourse and we raised hell i mean we got into a lot of trouble a lot of lot of problems were were brought forward with that project but the project had to be done and the timing of which was right and the context of which was you know so I'm, i'm very very sensitive to the idea of land claim and and indigenous rights and uh we you know and all of the associated things that are happening around us today I'm loving what I'm loving what I'm seeing. Finally, the voices are getting clearer and stronger, and change is coming, whether we like it or not. And I think it's a really healthy sign of a healthy, possibly a healthier culture
0: overall. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot being said now, and and I love the fact that artists are stepping up to use their voices. Mm-hmm.
1: And yet, the allegorical minimalist likes to defy all that. So you know, it's about interpretation, the impossibility of it which limits any reading of anything that you do. So the allegorical minimalism co- comes back in as a check to make sure that what you're doing um, doesn't overcomplicate things and doesn't keep it away from a personal experience. And most importantly, it's the personal experience part of what I do that I really want to emphasize.
0: So as part of my closing, I always ask my guests to recommend or talk about a book that they think is inspiring and that artists should read.
1: Well, I, yeah, uh, it is hard to pick one. Um, Well, read the book that uh, Mark Cheatham wrote on the ecology since, you know, landscape since the 1960s. That's an incredibly powerfully well-written book that also really gives you a a sense of, you know, my context. And uh, since you're talking to me today, that Mm -hmm. would make contextual sense. And and those are the kinds of things that that I think are valuable reads. And in addition to which, I read anything by Tom King. (laughs) Why Tom King? I, he's just hilarious. He's hilarious. He's poignant. He's serious. He's uh, super, super savvy about the cultural complications that indigenous culture is facing and, and the conflicts within you know the context of the colonial world, the settler world. Um, and there's another book that I would recommend called Hungry Listening by Dylan Robinson, who's at Queen's University. A mind-blowing book. Absolutely mind-blowing book. And it will, it will rock your world.
0: Um, that's
1: something that I couldn't stress strongly
0: enough. What I love about this question is it expands my reading list.
1: Yeah, and read, read anything by Murray Schaefer, who just passed away on the weekend. And, uh, you know, his many, many incredible books, Tuning of the World and so on, you know, Soundscape, uh, the originator of popularization of the idea of that landscape and soundscape are, are coexist and so on. So, you know, in honor of a great, great man, a, a huge human being, read everything he wrote. He's, he was marvelous, marvelous mm-hmm. writer, marvelous thinker.
0: Okay, hey, great. Thank you so much, Reinhardt. It's been wonderful talking to you and hearing about your journey and how this all came about. I had no idea about the musical side of your world, but I've learned a lot. And uh, Yeah,
1: I yeah. should tell you that in, uh, in terms of the musical part of my world, when I was in rock bands uh, and this crazy tech school I went to in Toronto, really tough environment, a bunch of the tough guys kept protecting me because they didn't want me to hurt my hands because I had to play guitar.
0: That makes sense.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so i had patron early patronage uh, didn't even know what it was then so thank you so much this has been a pleasure i mean i love podcasts so to me this is a delight to be able to talk about things that i that i enjoy and, and i love what questions you put out at me and always enjoy your company so we'll just continue
0: great we'll, we might have to have a part two at some point
1: i'm there
0: anytime right. thanks anytime. again Leonard.
1: my pleasure thank you
0: Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.